Good morning and welcome back to the Isle of Faces. I am your jolly green giant. I am Jack of all glades and these are the emerald shores of our beloved isle. Ah, to hear that music again. True enough, we have faded into the strange mists of history in times of late, but I think if you check your Westerosi history, you'll see that the Isle of Faces has a habit of doing that anyway, so we're only copying really. It comes, it goes, but the Isle is always there within the God's eye, and it turns out so is this podcast. Welcome back everyone, good to see you here. In case you missed it before, or perhaps you straight up forgot, I'll repeat for you, I am your Jolly Green Giant, or Jack of All Blades, you can use those names. And this is a once regular podcast about the goings-on of A Song of Ice and Fire. On the off chance that you are a former listener, I won't delve too deep right now into what the Isle is all about. It's easy enough to find out anyway, and I'll cover it another time. But suffice to say that in the past, we focused on interviewing fellow members of the fandom. Then we joined up with the mighty history of Westeros for what seemed like the largest re-raid project in world history. Yes, it did happen to culminate in back-to-back four- and five-hour episodes at the end of Dance of Dragons from yours truly, episodes I'm still actually pretty proud of. Thank you very much. And more recently than that, I covered the wins preview chapters and then took on the big old challenge of answering 100 questions about the Winds of Winter, which is where you hopefully intentionally find yourselves today. Already a wordy explanation, and unfortunately... There is a bit more to go. After a year and a bit, there tends to be a bit of housekeeping to cover. I'll try and keep it light for you. I'm sure you want to get to the uh, actual meat of the episode as much as I do, but we need to catch up. It's been a while. Hello, how are you? Are you well? I do hope so. There's been a long, very long absence to this podcast for a variety of reasons, and it's actually a list that keeps on growing. I'll come back to that in a minute. I'm not going to go mega deep into this because again most of you probably couldn't care less which i find absolutely understandable but some of you might be interested i will do another episode another point that goes much much further into the um, minute by minute (laughs) breakdown of this but the largest of reasons of why the podcast stopped was that during the final week of last august so august 21 we're talking about i completely tore my back apart while playing basketball uh spent the night in A&E uh, very uncomfortably sat in a wheelchair and then spent considerably more time afterwards uh, relearning how to walk and um and things kind of went spiraling from there the injury reoccurred first off in, in January it was actually worse uh, it's getting to the point where it's happening monthly and as you can imagine it was just a, a bit of a physical disruption to the logistics of how you live your life again i won't go into all the boring details of how i can't sit in a chair for more than 10 minutes and uh, couldn't tie my shoelaces for several months and all these kind of things because it's boring uh, if you have listened to the podcast before probably for even just one episode you'll know that uh, basketball to me is the equivalent of what humans call oxygen so there's an emotional component in that as well uh again won't go into it now i've kept that information on patreon only so far so the patrons they do know about that i've kept them at least semi up to date uh, in times of late but apology so apologies to those patrons for rehashing old info here it's old hat to them they don't want to hear it but um worry not i will go into that further in another episode in a separate episode 
if you're just here for the A Song of Ice and Fire content, I will try not to delay you too much longer. What I will say is, yeah, it's um, had a big effect and there's lots of changes otherwise as well. Some related to the back. I mean, it's all knock-on effect. You know how these things go. But there's financial stuff and moving places and all that kind of stuff. The world in general, not super right now. My dear continent in war for more than six months. Old Queenie has left us. Uh, we have some new reptile in our head of state and uh, the winter comes, the heating doesn't, the prices go up, the money doesn't, that kind of thing. So I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir and I know, don't worry, I know many of you, many people in general out there, worse off than me, are not trying to complain, I'm just giving you the information. Let's talk about something, uh, something different. I'll come back to that growing list because if you are on the Isle of Faces Patreon, you'll know this little kind of comeback and starting things up again, that idea isn't uh, so recent. This is back in August and September I intended to do this. So why is it taken to October? Again, that uh, that life thing, to kind of paraphrase Jeff Goldblum, it uh, gets in the way, doesn't it? It sure does. Like I say, Queenie, she passed away. We were uh, That hit us hard in this house, that type of thing. And then about a month ago, I had this script that you're going to hear today all ready to go. I'd done a spore call just to kind of get into the the flow of things again. Didn't go well, but at least I did it. Uh, and then I had some kind of like growth in the like back of my jaw, my jaw. And I couldn't talk for two weeks. And then I ended up needing periodontal surgery. And I couldn't talk for two weeks after having the surgery. And I know I will not claim to be uh, any kind of savant of how podcasts work, but it turns out that being able to talk is a fairly large part of it. So again, patrons, uh, you'll know some of that. Some parts will be new to you. I apologize for the second delay. Even today, the the stars are just aligned against this podcast. Come, oh, the charger's not working for the phone anymore. Oh, I've got to wait for the laundry to be done. Oh, here comes the dog. She wants to talk to me. But now we're here. We are talking, so don't worry. We are finally here, back on the aisle, and it's nice to be here, isn't it? I am speaking to you from a rainy, drizzly England. Unfortunately, it's that time of year. First frost the other day, nice damp mud for the dog walk this morning, but then uh, you're probably quite used to that as well. So like I say, I will go into this at more at another point, but it has been a tough time overall. It's tough to come back now to the... Uh, to the podcast it's an emotional thing for me this podcast meant a lot and then kind of didn't mean so much or meant the opposite for a long time like I say tough world for many if not all of us and I'm still better off than most but it's okay to admit that it's tough we should all do that I should try to do better at that because you know us British we do not like to admit that too much so in that vein actually while I'd love to say I'm returning for 100% enjoyment of the cause, which is a large percentage, don't get me wrong, I like to talk to you all. It's also to help out financially. We are being squeezed so much by our, our damn government. Our damn government. Uh, and if you're aware of the situation in the UK at the moment, this coming winter does look to be tough and windy. So I've never actually done this before. I've already had, always had a bit too much pride but probably no room for pride anymore so i am going to actually ask you if you can if you can obviously if you could take a look at the patron if you're in the situation to do so that would be wonderful if you can't absolutely fine no one knows that kind of situation better than i absolutely understandable 
uh, and maybe you just don't want to. Also fair enough, completely up to you. But if you can, that would be lovely uh, because those guys over at the Patreon, they are not, are not messing around here. They honestly kept us afloat sometimes in this little gap. They put food on the table. Uh, they really did make the difference. And I, I have thanked them extensively for that on the Patreon and I will do so again because couldn't appreciate it more genuinely but anyway I thank you even if you can't I thank you for considering it anyway now things are different like I say financial consequences means had to get rid of the old mic had to get rid of the laptop things like that so if this podcast sounds different to you there's a reason for that in a different place different mic different headphones all that kind of stuff also just well out of practice with it so hopefully you forgive me hopefully this um isn't too offensive to your ears as we go and I'll get back into it. What I will say is if you were if you're a person where the audio quality and that and production quality is of really high importance to you, you probably weren't that regular visitor to the other faces anyway. So hopefully you're gonna stick with me. Now what else do I need to update you on? I know it's dragging on. Don't worry, we will get to the dragons and the ice and stuff soon, don't worry. I've had no Twitter or fandom interaction in the last year and a bit. You know, like one percent sometimes glance at it so forgive me please for not being up to speed on the the goings-on within the fandom with all of you uh, if people have started podcasts or stopped stopped podcasts or whatever they're doing i'm just completely out of the loop and believe me that's nothing personal i'm just personally done with social media and twitter etc etc that's a conversation for another day don't worry but um just just forgive me for for that what I would like to say very quickly, I think we do have to mention it, is, of course, House of the Dragon. I don't know if all of you are watching, but I'm going to bet that a large contingent of you are. And I've been watching. I'll be honest, I wasn't sure if I was going to when it was coming up, when it was first announced. Again, this needs to be talked about in a different episodes, but I've just been completely separated from the world of Westeros. I really haven't thought about it at all. So I wasn't bothered when the show was announced but I've been watching and it's been great and it has reinvigorated my interest a bit not to levels of days gone by but very very interesting and actually one of the reasons I think I'm enjoying it so much is that I'm not looking at it from a commentator content creator's eye I'm just watching it I'm not going on Twitter afterwards and looking at this theory that theory this um, complaint or praise or whatever I'm just watching it on my own and I personally enjoy that way way more not for everybody some people love that interaction with the fandom i sure did at the end at the end of game of thrones but currently in my headspace this is the way i like it and i'm actually pretty lucky because i've only read fire and blood once that was like three years ago and to be honest with you i didn't even really read it this was back when i had to just scan the pages for looking for mentions of castles to see what happened there so when this came out and started watching a few episodes i'm in this really sweet spot where I can remember, you know, the big things. I can remember, okay, I know who dies. I know they fight eventually. But I also couldn't remember just enough to make it super, super interesting to me. I couldn't remember the details. I remember, uh, you know, I know there's something called Tumbleton, but I can't quite remember what it is. I know uh, Blood and Cheese is coming up, but I could, I got uh, whose kids it was wrong. That kind of thing. Uh, hopefully, I didn't. I don't think I spoiled anything there. I think I'm safe, so don't worry. Yeah, just this really sweet spot, and I've been really, really enjoying it. To be fair, lots of really good stuff on TV at the moment. We're pretty spoiled, but again, won't go into that later. And what I didn't want to do is episodes on each episode. House of the Dragon. I just didn't want to do that. 
And I'm sure you're not in need of that. I'm sure everyone is doing that and doing it very well, as they always do. What I might do maybe is an episode once the season's finished and just do a bit of a roundup of stuff I liked and, you know, cool moments because there's plenty of them. So we might get to that eventually. I think we can all say it's been a success and hopefully most of you like it. I couldn't really see much reason why you wouldn't, but I'm sure there are some out there. Now, speaking of things to come and going forward and the future and all that type of thing, I'm going to save all that for another time as well. Um, What I will say is that the Isle of Faces of Days Gone By is probably gone for now. The weekly episodes, the just that kind of ability that's not with me right now. That just doesn't work logistically, emotionally, mentally. Can't do that right now. But what we are going to do, hopefully, is just uh, we're taking more of like a, um, a Radio Westeros type approach. And there's not many ways you can compare the other faces to Radio Westeros, but one of them could be in the scheduling, in that there's just a less strict approach and a larger gap between episodes. Maybe some will come close, maybe some will be far apart. But what are they going to be about? And I'm, I I will put the asterisks on for you, the disclaimer. I can't promise uh, that this is all going to work out. You know, I need to be working and doing all these other things. So some maybe it won't work, maybe it won't work, but I'm going to give it a go. I'm going to give a go at finishing off these 100 questions of The Winds of Winter. I'm going to give a go at having that House of the Dragon episode. I want to do scraps and screens, especially now that the the season of House of the Dragon has come to the end and people are thinking about the TV show, TV show again. Sporkle Spectaculars. I'd love to talk to people within the fandom again. That would be great. All these types of things. I'm going to have this big episode about what happened to the other faces as well. These are things you can look forward to at some point. It's just a lot harder to tell you when but hopefully you, you will stick with like i mentioned earlier on patreon already there is a special sporkle episode where i tried to get back in to the westerosi mindset and it was brutal i'm not lying like i say haven't looked or read or watched anything on a song of ice and fire in a year and a bit so doing these quizzes oh it was uh humbling let's say that's the polite way to put it i kind of paid my penance i think to um to get back into it for my long delay made my embarrassment clear to everyone yeah that was uh that was interesting but that's up there for patrons and hopefully you'll enjoy speaking of those patrons i've I've done it already but i'm going to do it again multiple times because i must 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 thank those who were so kind during my absence not just in keeping on patreon but sending me messages and talking to me uh because I mean, it's, it's a tough thing to do, isn't it? You didn't know the situation and reaching out can be tough. The patrons, of course, but there's also other select members of the fandom as well. Fandoms and friendships don't always run as smoothly as you might like, but there were a choice few who did reach out, who did check up on me. And of course, there were those wonderful, wonderful patrons who, and again, I'm not exaggerating, were absolute rocks at time. Crucial, needed rocks. Their generosity was beyond helpful to me, to us, and I will be forever grateful. There's going to be so much Patreon-only content coming. I can't even tell you about it now, but trust me, I'm going to repay you if it's the last thing I do. That's my hope, at least. Like I say, long-time listeners will, I hope, agree that I'm a straight talker. I like to think that that's kind of the the hallmark of the other faces. It's not a blow smoke kind of podcast. We're not we're not pretending to be anything that we aren't. I hope I can get into that regular schedule and give all you patrons and listeners what you deserve. But then I hoped it before and that life thing did get in the way as it tends to do. But we will cross our fingers. Yes, let's all do that. So that leaves just one final part of our kind of 
Isle of Faces Treehouse Keeping. One last bit before we actually get down to it. I know it's gone on for ages and you've been so good listening to me. But we must do some Patreon shoutouts. My incredible, genuine thanks go out to, and it's a joy to say these names once again, Grizzly M, Devora L, Glenn T, Brandy T, KM, Crystal F, Virginia D, Chloe K, A and A, Julie Beth of Taff, Little Wolfbird, Philip D, Tory D, and of course, Archmaster June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, and so many, many more that I'm not directly referencing, who also deserve thanks and appreciation. Okay, nearly 20 minutes of recording time and I haven't even got to what we're talking about. That's the other thing. My voice may well give out. I might have to do this in two chunks. Can I record all of this at once? It's been a long time since I've done that, so we'll find out together. Anyway, anyway, let's get on with it. Let's remind you of what this particular set of Isle of Faces episodes is all about. The 100 questions on the Winds of Winter. As it says on the tin... This is 100 questions about anything and everything on the Winds of Winter. We've had four episodes come out so far. If you've already caught those previous episodes, you'll know that they were averaging 10 questions per episode. There's some deep diving into theories or specific storylines, while other questions were more about a general take or something we're looking forward to or kind of just guesswork at times. Questions such as, uh, who will be the first POV death in the book? Will we see new Valerian steel swords on page? Larger questions like, what will fucking Littlefinger get up to? Hmm. And uh, other other large ones as well. What was Barristan going to do in the Battle of the Fire? Huge, ranging questions that really do cover every corner of the map and every storyline and character. So if you haven't caught them or you need a reminder, like I probably do, I encourage you to go back and have a listen. I mean, if I was smart, I probably would have done that myself, but I haven't. One key thing to point out is that many of these questions, the grand majority actually, have been supplied by you, the listeners. So please, if you can think of any more, don't hesitate to get in touch because you might have a great one that I can just add onto the list. I'd like that. If you can think of any and would like a shout out on the show, obviously, you can email at isleoffacespodcast at gmail.com. That's probably the best way nowadays. You can try and tweet at me at Jack of All Glades, but I'm not there all too often, but I will try. Or sending a message on Patreon. Also a great move, just send a raven if you've got one. They always find me. At the same time, send in your answers as well. That's always a really enjoyable part of these episodes. To questions you're going to hear today, or even some of the old ones if you like. You might agree, you might disagree. You might have an angle I've not thought of. I am very rusty, and uh, chances are you probably know more than, way more than me at the moment. I have not touched these books whatsoever in a year. So don't be surprised if I miss out on like a really simple connection. I've forgotten what's happened in the final chapters or something like that. I'll try and keep those to a minimum, but I'm sure you could point out several instances of that in this episode. So I'd love to see you all bringing in the support with your wonderful knowledge that you all have. So that's what we're doing. The one final difference going forward, especially in the early stages where I need to get back into the swing of things. My voice box is probably already needing a rest 20 minutes in. It's been quite a while since the days of four and five hour episodes. So I'm just going to start off with five questions today, instead of ten, just five. Worry not, you're not going to get shorted on content. Those previous episodes of ten questions, they were running about three hours long, and I think you'll all agree we need a bit of a warm-up before tackling anything of that length. Then again, you might also remember my tendency to waffle, and that was when I could remember things clearly, so we might end up about the same time anyway, to be honest. Regardless, at long last, after the bigger gap and almost as large explanation going on today, I propose we finally get down to it and talk about some A Song of Ice and Fire stuff. It's a strange feeling for me, uh, emotional, 
if I'm being honest, these books were a big part of my life for a long time. It has been a long, strange, difficult absence, but I believe all that's left is to just dive in. So if you'll oblige me, my beloved green folk, let's dive in together. In fact, you know what? I'm going to get in the mood by reminding you of all the previously covered questions, just so we're all on the same page here. In episode one, the questions were, what will fucking Littlefinger get up to in Winds of Winter slash will he be the ultimate villain? Who will be the first POV death? Is Mira Reed alive? Which newbie will make the biggest impact on the Winds of Winter? Who will become a snitch in Winds? What's a personal rivalry you'd like to see coming to a head? What do you think Tarth will do in the Aegon situation? Who is the most likely non-titled POV to gain a title? How is Jon Snow revived? And is Jon Snow that pretty in the books? During episode 2, the questions were What locations that we've never been to are you looking forward to in seeing in wins? Who is the next nimble dick or fan favourite? Which storyline or character do you find the most difficult to predict for wins? How do you see the Lady Stoneheart story panning out and might Aya play a part in her demise? Will any new Valerian steel swords be introduced on page and if so which? Who's most likely to get an early exit? Will Sweet Robin survive Winds of Winter? What possible events happening at the end of Dance or during Winds do you think Bran could see through the Weirwood net? Could Danny use the Dragonbinder horn and not burn up due to her innate heat tolerance? What was Tywin doing in Lease? In episode 3, the questions were Any guesses for the setting and POV of the prologue chapter? You know I like talking about the prologue chapter. Do you think the wall will be down by whatever means by the end of the book? Hodor dies and Stannis will burn Shireen, but George has said it will be different from the show. How so? Will there be an actual attempt to crown Theon? Which POV characters are you most concerned about surviving wins? What are some likely moments of vengeance that you're looking forward to seeing? Is Loras really gravely injured slash what happened at Dragonstone? Do we get the R plus L equals J reveal in wins? And if so, how do you see that happening? What other prizes will Euron Greyjoy end up with by the end of the book? How many years are you expecting the remainder of the story to cover? And finally, in episode 4, the questions were, if Westeros had a newspaper, give me one of the most misguided headlines. Does George have another rug to pull out from under his readers during this book? Will any pregnancies be brought to light in The Winds of Winter? What's one question you would pose to any character if you could? What do you think Sorella will get up to in The Winds of Winter? Who will Darkstar align with? Will John Coynton burn down King's Landing? Who will be the next person to be checked off of Aya's kill list? What will happen to the Weeper in the Winds of Winter? And do you think there's any merit to the Lemon Tree Theory? There you go, all caught up. That is all the questions we've asked and answered so far. All 40 of them, sweet, sweet 60 to go. So, let's tackle today's questions. I'll tell you about them now so you know what to look forward to. The five questions today are... Which way will Daenerys and Drogon fly following Danny's end at the close of A Dance of Dragons? What is Danny's reaction to the Battle of Fire, even if it is considering a victory? So lots of Danny talk to start the day with. Will Stannis sacrifice Shireen successfully? What otherworldly creatures will feature in the Battle of Ice? And finally, is Gilly even in Old Town? Whew. And we are now at uh, 27 minutes of recording time. We're about to get to the first question. Here we go, back to 100 questions on the Winds of Winter. We begin with question 41. This comes from patron Grizzly M. Grizzly M, thank you so much for the question. 
It reads, which way will Danny and Drogon fly? My personal hope is that she finds out from Carl Jacko that the Yunkish are demanding more slaves to trade at Marine. She and Drogo flex and kill Carl Jacko, he's a wanker that had it coming, and lead her new Kalisar to join the fray in Marine. Then she flies to Vastofrak to become queen of everything, as indicated by the prophecy. Wowzers, it's a big question. We're coming back with a bang. And let me just point out that my mind is already reeling trying to remember the details of the end of Dance with Dragons and who's where and doing what. So again, please be forgiving of mistakes. I might well be repeating word for word something I've said before. I might say something completely contradictory. We're going to find out together. There's quite a lot to unpack there uh, in that question, but it's a pretty common question overall. What does Daenerys do next, essentially? I think the first thing to remember is we don't actually know what state Daenerys is in at the close of Dance, if I remember correctly. If you cast your mind back to that brilliant final proper chapter of Dance with Dragons, Danny 10, where we had her thinking of her Targaryen-ness, if that's a word, etc, etc, it was back in those four and a half hour episodes of Scraps and Scrolls, where it ended with Carl Jacko turning up in the, in the uh, Dothraki Sea, and Daenerys, rather symbolically, standing by her dragon yes that was a very very good chapter to cover back in the isles peak but what happens after we've got no clue and i remember discussing this point quite intensely it's all starting to come back to me now what happens post daenerys 10 we obviously don't have a danny preview chapter or one of anyone close to her that would know so the crucial question really is this do jacko and his kalasar or his outriders capture daenerys straight off does Drogon fly off again and abandon her? Do they somehow capture him as well? Or are they already stunned into revenants of the pair because the Dothraki do honour strength and you aren't going to find much stronger than Drogon? If you recall, you've probably read it much more recently than I, they've already seen him just take down a horse, which is also very symbolic to them, a large part of their culture, and he cuts quite the figure anyway on his own. So it's entirely possible that they're just going to think about honouring this huge beast straight off. I mean, a lot, a lot of us would, wouldn't we? So that's the first question to tackle, is what Daenerys situation do we actually open on in the Winds of Winter before we even deal with what she's going to do next? It's another question, and uh, to be honest, it's not much of an answer, because it's, really it's a bit of a toy cost, isn't it? We don't have any actual evidence that suggests either path that she could take. And the simple fact is, it could be either without really affecting the plot too much, either could happen with us still reaching the tent poles that we all suspect we will at some point. It could be that Carl Jacko has realised straight away who this is. There's probably not that many blonde ladies driving a dragon around the Dothraki seat after all. And he's therefore riding over so that he can put Daenerys to the Dothclean law of returning her back to Vase Dothrak. Or he might be seeing this ultimate display of raw power on his land and figuring, hang on, I'm not having that. And he's either trying to come and kill the pair or maybe take Drogon for himself or both, whatever. The other option is that honour that we just spoke about. Are they going to come up peacefully, respectfully? Hmm. Doesn't seem like what Dothraki do, but could happen. I'm always hoping that they do try the rough stuff, just because I want to see this newly linked uh, Danny and Drogon pairing do some real damage. They seem a lot closer in that last chapter. I'd like to see that kind of unlocked and then just kicking ass together. That would be nice. And it might not be Jacko who starts the fight either. Let's remember what Danny has just been through in that final dance chapter. Starvation, sickness, a possible, even probable miscarriage, without mentioning the tons and tons of mental and emotional anguish. Is she really in the mood to be putting up with any shit? No, she is not. 
And even if she were, she just spent a whole chapter thematically linking her back to her Game of Thrones arc. She was thinking about Drogo, she was thinking about Viserys, she's in the Dothraki Sea again, if we needed it any clearer. So it's going to be even more at the forefront of her mind who this guy is. She's obviously recognised him straight off, as her final line of the book tells us, so there's no messing around. Draco, the guy who took part in the gang rape and murder of Erea, that favourite name of mine. I thought we'd left her behind, but obviously not. Erea? Whoever. You know who I'm talking about. Daenerys was literally just thinking about it in that last chapter. And don't forget, Mago was also part of that horrific crime as well, and he became Jacko's blood rider. So there's every chance he's here in this scene as well, she just hasn't mentioned him yet. Is Danny in her current on-the-edge state, capable of seeing those two and not delivering some fiery justice slash vengeance? We figure uh, uh, quite a lot of her wins arc is going to involve doing just that. So why not hit it from the very start? Why not get these themes set? So maybe she fights but but fails and is taken. Maybe she fights and just kills those two, earning the respect of the others. Again, certainly that's what I hope. But I guess that's kind of a dance around that's not actually addressing Grizzly M's question, where does Danny go next? Well, Grizzly gave us her opinion in the question. So let's switch back to her idea of Daenerys hearing about these extra slaves being um, sold and going to Marine straight off, assuming that she does have the freedom to do so. I'm personally not sure that things go in this order myself. What I do like about Grizzly's idea is this hearing of the Yunkish kicking off the slave trade again in her absence and all she worked for so, so diligently in dance has kind of crumbled already. Although remember, she did already know that the Yunkish would be dealing slaves outside Marine anyway, bear that in mind. Still, it is an important reminder of that little detail and is something else that Daenerys has literally just been thinking about in her final chapter. Also consider she's not lacking in motivation to get back to Marine. That was also heavily covered in Daenerys 10. She already super, super wants to get back there. She might not want to stay long term anymore and she might be going back with different priorities, but something that is unchanged is that she wants to go back and save her children. So she has that motivation already, but there's no reason that this new news can't add on to it. Killing Carl Jacko, I think we're all on board with, but where I differ from Grizzly is the idea of heading straight back to Marine. I think this would work great in terms of timing and getting Daenerys back to see the fresh aftermath of the battle, because we know that's literally kicking off at the beginning of the book. So that all makes more sense, but what about this idea of a Kalasar? I absolutely think that Daenerys can win one for herself, perhaps by killing Jacko right here and now, but getting them all the way back to Marine in time to see the end of the battle, uh, I just don't think there's time. I think it's too far away. I know we don't know exactly where Daenerys 10 takes place, and maybe it's still relatively close in the Dothraki Sea, but it might not be. It could be ages away. And the Dothraki, sure, they can definitely move fast, but probably not fast enough for that. I definitely, definitely don't think either Daenerys or the Dothraki are fast enough to actually take part in the battle itself. Let's work that away. As you know, we have a question about the battle coming up in a moment, but I just don't think that they get to be involved. The other problem that I have with this is I'm just not sure there's time narratively for Danny to go to Marine, then back to Vase Dothrak to win the Dothraki en masse, and then assumedly back to Marine again, because we figure she's going to get to Westeros via Volantis going that way. Uh, I won't go into all that now, but that's just a long way to go. I suppose it's possible she could literally retrace her steps and go back the way she came in a Game of Thrones, but again, I don't see, think so personally. Could be wrong, but that's my opinion. 
Considering the amount of stuff to wrap up in the city of Marine itself and hopefully getting her journey started, I just don't think there's enough pages. And I don't think she'd have the motivation anyway to return to Vastofrak once she's in Marine. No one's going to be in a rush to let her go off on her own again, are they? She's got plenty of things to get on with. I don't think she's going to go for a Vastofrak holiday. She's not short of warriors and followers as it is, and she has this new line of thinking to follow as well. Unless there is something that specifically points her to Vastofrak, perhaps Quaif or something from the Dothraki themselves, I don't see it happening. So my overall response is this. I've always assumed that Danny would go to Vastofrak first, possibly under duress, maybe with her newly won Dothraki warriors, they persuade her and she likes the idea of having a new powerful weapon to challenge the slavers with after her recent failings and her sense of powerlessness, powerlessness, although she does have Drogon for that as well. Or maybe she's just in that Dothraki sea mindset and that she's thinking about the Dothraki and wants to wrap up these issues that she's been thinking of. Remember, she knows nothing of the battle and the time in it she's on. So I figure they go there first for some kind of winning the Dothraki as, whole, as a whole, then to Marine, and then westward. In all fairness, the more I think about it, I don't think it's actually essential that she goes back there at all. If George does find he's short on time, maybe he just gives her Jacko's Kalasar. We know what the show said and the thematics of going back there and all that type of thing, so it's still very likely. But if she does, I say she goes there first and Marine after. But I am definitely, definitely on board with visiting the most painful, fiery vengeances on Carl Jacko and Mago if he's there too. Yes, please, that would be a lovely start to the book. There you go, question 41. We've got one down, it's in the books. Hopefully that was not too painful for you. Hopefully I'm not too rusty. Please do let me know if your if your opinion differs. Let's move on to the next. Here is question 42. What is Danny's reaction to the Battle of the Fire, even if it is a victory? So we're sticking with the East and we're sticking with Daenerys early on here, which is fine because we know that this will be coming fairly early in the books. The battle at least, not necessarily her reaction, but the battle definitely. And we know it's going to be a pretty big deal. So it's good to refresh ourselves with one of the most important parts of the book. Plus, Daenerys herself, also pretty big deal. And we're all generally in a Targaryen mindset right now, aren't we, anyway? So let's keep with Daenerys for now. Okay, so I have two important points to cover in this question. Firstly, let's remind ourselves of what the marine Danny left looked like. So what elements, therefore, of the Battle of Fire could make easy sense to her, such as, for example, the slavers attacking her city. That doesn't take a particularly long mental power for her to arrive at. But also, what elements are therefore going to be a huge surprise? Like, say, I don't know, uh, the freaking Ironborn running around in Marine, of all places. And maybe someone blowing on a horn and taking one of her dragons. I think that might raise her eyebrows a bit more when she returns. But we'll come back to that, because the other point, the more interesting point to my mind, what constitutes a victory for Danny in this situation anyway? It's not as easy a thing to qualify as it would have been in some of the previous battles we've seen in the series. No, no, no. Nothing is ever so straightforward in Marine. What is a victory for Daenerys in this situation? In a perfect world, it would be the Yonkish defeated, the hostages all freed and alive, and Marine safe and united behind her rule. Maybe we even get a rainbow. That'd be good. I think she knows going in that even this battle can't solve that last point, but she'd likely settle for her children being safe and maybe some dead Yonkish as well. That would be good. Without going all the way back through our Battle of the Fire expectations, because that is something I went through a lot, a lot, a lot, uh, back in Scraps and Scrolls and in the Barry Winds chapters as well, and even earlier episodes of this series as well, I, uh, again, I could do with the reminder. 
which of these victory requirements could actually be achieved by the time Danny returns, or how likely are they might be a better way to put it. And bear in mind, I'm going to essentially ignore the volunteer fleet factor because they're just too unknowable. If you need a reminder, like me, there is a huge, huge fleet stacked to the brim of soldiers due to arrive at Marine at any moment. And they are large enough to completely swing the battle, the outcome of the battle. So quite the factor we need to include there. But I'm going to ignore it for now because they might not be there before Daenerys anyway, although I think they will. Um, and we just don't know if they're going to turn up and fight or turn up and go pro Daenerys. We don't know. I personally do think they go pro Danny because based on their numbers, if they do turn up aggressive, they probably wipe out the whole city with ease. And that doesn't make for an interesting battle after all this build-up, but who knows? Not me. Let's go back through those victory requirements that Danny would have had if he'd asked her before she arrived. Junkish defeated. Okay, this is one we can definitely see because it looks like that's where it's going to go anyway, from those late dance and early wins chapters. Barristan has done well attacking the trebuchets, if you remember. His charge is strong in the initial stages. His companies have beat theirs. We know at least one sellsword company is about to come over in the second sons. We heavily assume that the windblown will do the same. Hoping I've got my sellsword uh, companies correct there. I think I do. I could be wrong. Victorian has also arrived and is providing a pincer from the docks. But most importantly, most importantly and clearly, remember the Yunkish just suck in general. If there's anything we learn from those Tyrian chapters... Boy, howdy, was it that? They are beyond ridiculous. They are fucked, to put it plainly. So that's good, because we don't like them. They are the main problem for Danny at the end of the day, and it looks like this is what might happen. But what is the cost to make it happen? There are no free victories this late in the series, if there ever were. How many other freedmen did she lose to defeat the Yunkish? Was Dario killed in the chaos? Did Sir Barry fall? Obviously, we're not going to get through this without massive casualties, and that's not actually something Daenerys has had to experience a lot and definitely not for a long time. She's been on the winning side throughout her conquest with relative ease. This will be very different indeed, very much uh, more down in the mud. The numbers are higher. The stakes are higher. The scene that she comes back to will be unlike anything she's ever witnessed. She's seen some stuff, but this is going to be worse. The chaos of it, the not knowing who's on whose side, the pure violence of the Ironborn, the cruelty of the Yunkish, the just general love of death in this area of the world. Danny will come back to blood-soaked fields, I am sure of it, and I think it is going to affect her. As we say, she's seen violence, she's seen horribleness before, but not on this level. This is something else. I'm hoping this is jogging your memory, bringing back the, the real deep dives we did on this at the end of Dance and in those Barry and Tyrion wins chapters, because it's certainly doing it for me. It's bringing it all back, that big sense of this huge huge thing that's about to go down and what might really get to her on an emotional level is if these blood-soaked fields also have some scorch marks on them we've discussed before the potential of the two dragons getting involved whether they are under the influence of Dragonbinder or not they could just do it on their own and they could go to town on both sides that's the thing i think even if they somehow only went for the yunkish even that would be a big wake-up call to the to the level of destruction they can actually bring. The hundreds of burned and half-eaten corpses and all that stuff. Consider how worried she was about the dragons in dance. Let's remember, all the way back at the beginning of her dance arc, she put them in the, um, the pit thing for a reason. Plus, we have had all that stuff that we just mentioned about her final chapter and the choices made within, so it's going to be very, very interesting to read Danny's emotional reaction 
to realising what she's actually dealing with with these dragons, what she's brought into the world, what she is responsible for in her mind, and what potential she actually wields. It's, it's one thing to think about it and be told about it, quite another to actually see it. Again, this is likely to be a major theme throughout Winds and beyond, especially of the, uh, especially if elements of the TV show do make it across. So again, very, very interesting. And that's if the dragons behave perfectly and only target the Yonkish side. Obviously, if half or more of their victims are on the marine side, oh, that makes it even worse for Danny to swallow. The hostages, we kind of just covered. Um, who can say? We've discussed it at previous times, the kind of reactions we'll get from these people meeting up. And when I say hostages, remember, I'm, I'm not talking about the children at this point. This is the exchange of hostages that occurred kind of near the end of Dance. So we're talking now about Jor meeting Dario, for example. We've spoken about that great big meeting of all these different people. Um, I think Jerris and Archibald, they're involved in that exchange too. So all these different uh, plot points, different characters, all going to get mashed up together in the worst of circumstances very, very quickly. And really, any of them could die, probably minus Tyrion. He's probably going to survive. Daenerys has already had a super emotional reaction to Captain Grolio, remember, his death. She's going to feel very, very guilty about their last conversation and what she led him to. Again, you might need to pop back to a Scraps and Scrolls episode if that's escaping you, but it boiled down to him asking to go home and her saying no. So if Dario dies, for example, how does she feel? Does she feel guilt about that? We might not be fans of Dario. She kind of thinks a little bit differently of him. She has Jorah to re-meet. She has Tyrion to meet. Uh, Jairus, remember, is still pissed at her for Quentin's death and he is, uh, yes, mixed up with the hostage exchange now. It goes on and on and on. The hostage storyline really is going to be one to witness and I find it one of the harder things to guess the outcome of that. I've discussed it in the past but I know it's confusing. But I think the big thing for Daenerys to consider a, a victory requirement criteria will be the state of Marine and specifically her children both literal children themselves and the wider ranks that she's adopted. Again, to revisit ideas well covered in Scraps and Scrolls, what is Skahaz up to? Is he going to take his opportunity and kill the cupbearers in the pyramid? Will Masande die trying to save them or maybe it will be Barristan? On the flip side, will the pit fighters try and free Hizdar and take their opportunity to retake the city? If Daenerys returns, no matter what happens out in the field, even if all the Yonkish die and none of her soldiers die, if she returns to a pyramid of slaughtered children, oh, then we can be sure we'll see some fiery, fiery dragon version of justice. And maybe this is where we'll see her new Targaryen direction take first form. That could be, uh, that could be on the cards. We don't want to see that. No, 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 I don't want to read that chapter. But it's very, very possible. This is going to be a dark book. We know of this. I also highly suspect she's not going to be happy about Victorian's involvement either, especially as he's likely to let his crews go uh, reaping through Marine as a reward. The Pale Mare, let's remember, I mean, there's just so many factors to this battle, isn't there? The Pale Mare, that, the rising of that disease seems uh, a likely result, thanks to Ironborn and just battle in general. The Harpy likely lives on. Then there's Makoro. Then there's Marwyn still, don't forget. There is just so much to deal with, and Danny isn't even aware of half of it yet. You know, when you come back after the weekend, you've got a lot of emails, and she's got like the ultimate version of that coming to her. And we haven't even spoken about the very real possibility of returning and seeing one of her dragons, one of her true children, controlled by whatever means. 
even if it was used, for example, to destroy the Yunkish and save the city and her people, do we really think she's going to be comfortable with that on any level whatsoever? The answer is no. Even if it's someone on her side, even if it were a Dario or a Barristan, or we can hope for Missande herself riding around on whichever dragon, is Daenerys going to be pleased that it is apparently now possible for someone to replace the bond she has with one of her dragons? Again, I say no. No, she is not. Speaking of those two other dragons, last she saw them, she'd locked them up for safekeeping. Are they still going to feel the same way about her? Will her connection with them have been broken because they've been apart for so long? Will she be too disgusted with whatever they've done on the field to reconnect with them? Is it even possible that one of them has died in her absence? If so, is there any greater form of heartbreak left for her in this world? Not much. So, to answer the actual question, I think she's going to be pretty pissed when she sees the outcome of the Battle of the Fire. Even the best outcome we can hope for is probably going to be very difficult and very confusing for her, very overwhelming. On both a large overview level, sure, and on the smaller, personal level, with all these relationships that she's suddenly got to deal with, everyone's going to want a piece of her even more than they did before, which was enough for basically giving her a mental breakdown. And let's be honest, it, it's not going to be the best outcome, is it? Even if we could hope for that, even if we could see a pathway to that, it's just not going to happen. Something is going to go wrong. The level of planning, the amount of layers going into this battle and its surrounding scenery, it's just not going to go straight forward. As for which aspect will crumble, well, you might as well just throw a dart at the board for which one will go wrong. It could be overall losses. It could be ravaging Iron Men, children killed in her very own pyramid. Personally, I still choose the latter. I think we are going to get that real heartbreak moment where the battle is probably won, but really it means nothing to Daenerys because of what happens to these kids under what she considers to be her watch. I do recall going through that possibility at some length, some uh, uncomfortable length. And then, yes, as I say, we likely get some fiery, possibly uh, not too great decisions from her immediately following that, and who could blame her? And that might be how we get into barristan conflicts and people changing sides and all these kind of things. But what we can say is that hopefully this victory will reaffirm her decision to get going westward. Possibly because of the aforementioned heartbreak just making her done with this place, even to the possible extent that she might just say fuck it and burn it down. Possibly because she now has allies in the Ironborn or the Volantines or the Dothraki or all of them. And possibly because she considers her job done in doing away with the Yunkish for good. That's the one we hope for. Yes, unfortunately that is a bit straightforward, but an angry, motivated Daenerys is probably preferred to the manipulated and downbeaten one we got in Dance. We just have to keep asking that cost question again and again because that is going to be a price to pay. Still, good fun thinking about that Battle of Fire and all those many, many, many different parts going into that uh, mess. <laughs> There's a good, we have a lot of information that, probably the most information of that rather than anything else from the preview chapters. Good to be reminded of all that. I enjoyed that. I think that was a correct decision from yours truly to start with Daenerys. But now, we must shift from that direction as we go for question 43. And it is, this is from Tom McShay of Fremont. I hope I pronounced that correctly, both name and place. What do you think about the theory that Stannis sacrificing Shireen will be successful? What better way to illustrate how complicated a human heart in conflict with itself can be than to have the murder of a child result in something positive, whether it be a dragon or something to do with the others or John, whatever it is. This relates, Tom says, very strongly to 
What's one child's life compared to the world? That old chestnut from A Storm of Swords. A really interesting question from Tom here. Thank you for it. And it's wonderfully put as well. So we're switching from the Far East now to the Far North, the other big area of importance. I think we know they're the two big ones, not just at the start of the book, but overall as well. We've had a lot of Shireen questions sent in for this series, but this one is actually a, a newbie. The thematic message of something horrible producing something good and how that mixes with those uber interesting and important discussions we had with Davos and Stannis way, way back on Dragonstone. It definitely remains one of the prevailing themes of the whole series. And it does kind of actually just link in with what we were just talking about, doesn't it? Something good from something bad. Danny might win, but the children might die. The difference here is that, in all likelihood, the death of the children in the pyramid won't be required for victory, but perhaps Shireen's death will be. Well, we can argue whether that will literally be the, cl- be the case, but closer to the point is people believing Shireen's death, and a very specific death, will have a specific outcome. The best intentions, as we know from reading this series, can cause the worst effects and all that. I think it's best with this question to start with John. Everything swirls around John in the North, we know. He's the area to look at for this question. I know I bring this up every time we talk Shireen, but what if it is John's resurrection she's used for? Or what if Monster, Gilly's hidden child, is used for the same purpose? Well, then it just doubles up, doesn't it? It's a positive for us as readers. We want to see John back. We believe that the this world needs him back. But how do we square that with maybe the crime of the series? There's a long list of potentials for the crimes, but this one is very, very close to the top, isn't it? I've spoken about Shireen's possible death in live streams before, so apologies for the repeat, but we know that George adores putting his characters in internal conflict almost as much as he likes doing the same to us readers. He offers something we all want, but he'll make us achieve it by going through the most sickening thing imaginable, and then he'll sit back and he'll ask, how do you feel about all that? Was it actually worth it? That is honestly one of the like cornerstone questions that this series is based on, in my opinion. And it's the same, again, for the in-world characters. They want John back. Hell, they probably need John back, but how much are you truly willing to pay for that? What is the payoff? Where does Stannis' eternal question set the line? What is the life of a single child against the life of all children? And what if you are the one who has to decide? Are you a hero for trying to take that burden on? Agreeing to essentially shred your own soul if it saves everyone else? Or is there a solid line you're not supposed to cross, as Davos supports? Does that make you a villain? Well, listeners, uh, hell if I know. There's zero easy answers here. But the fact that this revolves around Stannis obviously makes it so much more interesting. I'm not breaking any new ground here, but the fact that he often operates in in black and white and by the line and by the rule and his obsession with duty is is what makes it fascinating, more so than if this were happening to any other character, I think. We can't argue with the motivation, sure, but we can argue with the act. But then what if we change the setup? Let's say you have uh, 10 children lined up on your right and Shireen lined up on your left. You're told you have to burn Shireen or the other 10 children get the crossbow. What's right there? What's the correct answer? How do you uh, have the mental capacity to even consider what is best or fair or right? What we have here, everyone, is the Westerosi version of the trolley problem. Shout out to the good place. And that's where those Davos questions come in. The the almost kind of theological questions of what is right and what is wrong and what truly evil one of those means. Let me tell you, right here and now, 
the scope of such ideas is well beyond this aisle's limits. We can be critical with the setup we do have, however. We don't have Stannis' POV, so we, like the in-world characters, will have to ask what the motivation behind this move actually is. Is it because he thinks he's saving the world from the others, or is it because he's desperate to prove himself and this campaign and, the, and everything else? Perhaps it will be to try and save his own men, or is there personal ambition involved as well? Can it be a mix of all of them? Let's not forget that currently, currently, most lords, even those on Stannis' side, either aren't aware of or don't really believe about the threat of the others. So when they see this happen, are they going to be okay with the, like, don't worry, it's worth it to win the war. Let's all burn the kid just to defeat these ice beings reasoning. Maybe they will be. The reactions after the act, though, are a whole other discussion that we might get to a bit later. But continuing the critique talk, I think it's worth asking whether Stannis would do this were Shireen a different person. Most pertinently, would Stannis burn Shireen if she were a boy? This is a question I haven't actually seen asked elsewhere. Uh, that might not be the case for you, however. You'd know more than me. But I think it's worth thinking about. This is Stannis Baratheon, who, at best, we could probably call women averse. Uh, not many men attribute any value to women in this Westerosi world, unfortunately. But Stannis just kind of seems to do his best to ignore their general existence, to be honest. Yes, he does love his daughter, although we currently lack some of those scenes from the show that shore that up. But does he value her as he should? Does he think, in these assumed darkest moments of this potential decision, again, this is all potential, remember, we haven't actually arrived at this point of him burning Shireen, but we kind of know it's coming, that maybe it's okay to burn her because she'll, and I, believe me, I'm using the biggest quotation marks here, only grow up to be someone's wife or someone's mother anyway, would he hesitate more if this were a son in front of him, a true heir in his eyes, perhaps even in his own soldier-like mould? We do know fathers tend to treasure their sons a little differently from their daughters in general in Westeros. If you ask me, I think he would at least hesitate a little bit longer before lighting that match, were that the case. Now, conversely to that, we must speak on Stannis' slight defence on this point. Currently, as of the Winds preview chapters, Stannis has named Shireen his heir. He has commanded his commanders that if he should fall, their new mission is to put Shireen Baratheon upon the Iron Throne. And actually, slight by-question here. Does that give hints of his overall motivation? Is that not a self-indulgent move to keep his own line important and in power? Does he really think that Westeros will be best placed to deal with the, the threat of the others with a child on the throne if he does fall? That's probably a discussion for another day, to be honest. And I mean, to be fair, he's probably stuck with no better options, but it does bear thinking about for later. Anyway, what we're saying is, it's not an easy choice for Stannis. Oh, it's Shireen, it's a girl. Sure, throw the match on there and let's see what we get. No, I don't think that's the case at all. But I do think it would be very slightly different if Shireen were very slightly different, unfortunately. Let's swing back to Tom's original question here. I'm diverging again. The main point of said question is the idea that the burning is successful. Of course, our problem is we don't currently know what that success would be because we also don't know what the motivation is for burning her yet. And the most popular theory, as mentioned, is that she's used to bring John back. We've just gone through that. Certainly, that makes logistical sense at the moment as John has just been stabbed and Shireen is at the now very, very chaotic Castle Black, as is Melisandre, who does have a thing for burning people. Of course, the flip side for that is that Stannis is currently way, way down in the south, or the south of the north, south relative to Castle Black is what I should say. He is stuck in a crofter's village prepping for the Battle of Ice. 
and Tom did specifically ask about Stannis burning Shireen. So for that to happen, we'd have to wait a while, and do we think that John is going to hang around in Ghost or whatever else it is he's doing for that long? It's debatable. And actually, I now realise, I know we've kind of had confirmation of Shireen getting burned. I can't remember if the confirmation is that Stannis burns her, or that she just gets burned. Uh, again, you would know more than me. We'll return to John in a moment. Let's consider some other possibilities for why Shireen will need to be burned, possibilities that do involve Stannis for the sake of Tom's question. Will it be as simple as Stannis burning her to end a storm or stave off a physical winter or something in that vein? It's possible, although if he was going to really use that, he could probably do it now, actually, at the Crofters' village. And we'll likely all assume that Shireen can't make it that far south from Castle Black before the Battle of Ice starts. That doesn't mean it's impossible, though. She and her mother could go on the run. The timeline at the end of Dance is very tricky, very, very tricky. And in fairness, even if it's not used for the Winterfell battle specifically, it's not like winter is going anywhere anytime soon. So maybe Stannis will still need to get out of another snowy spot soon enough if you think that's reason enough to burn your child. Beyond that, there's a myriad of reasons it'd need to be done later in the book, assumedly when the threat of the others is a lot more real, a lot more close. Certainly, it'd be easier to persuade Stannis to do the act if that was the reason. Absolutely. So if the Battle of Ice is done, and Stannis is victorious or not, up at the wall, looking out into that long night, does someone suggest that the burning of Shireen will... what? Will it shore up the wall? Appease the old gods? Stop the others for some reason? We're getting into guest territory here, aren't we? Although, for reasons I've mentioned before, such as Stannis winning Winterfell and still being shunned by the Northerners, I do think he'll be in a mental state... Uh, a lot more allowing of burning his daughter alive by this point, in my opinion. Another key possibility is the waking of a dragon from stone. Perhaps when the others are at the wall, or even after they've broken through, and it really does seem like defeat is imminent. There's a couple of layers to this, of course. We're burning a girl with grayscale, the stone disease. We may be waking a dragon in John when they were hoping for a real-life fire-breathing one, and the idea is more linked to Winterfell than Castle Black. So perhaps that does point to a later part of the book after the wall has fallen, but it's still interesting. And there's another direction Tom's question can go in. The burning is successful, but is it successful in the intended way? Who's to say that Stannis doesn't burn Shireen for one reason and then gets a completely different result? One he himself either does or doesn't see as worth it. That would definitely fit in with how the gods of this world tend to work, i.e. not straightforward at all. Personally, the reason I still find most interesting is that resurrection of John. We keep circling back to him. And not even for what it does to Stannis' psyche, but for what it does to John's. I just can't get past the idea of John reanimated, alive again, being told that this is how and why he's alive. The little girl was murdered in the most painful way imaginable, that it took the most significant act of betrayal and um, kin-killing. I feel like that's not the right phrase. Kin-killing? Kinslayer? Kinslayer. Kinslaying, that's the one. See, I told you I'd forgot it all. That, that has all happened just to breathe life back into his body. In my opinion, that is horror writing at its finest. How can that do anything less than destroy John? And yet he has the mission still, supposedly, so he can't collapse, can he? He has to keep going. He can't waste it now. He can't have Shireen die just for him to give up. So he has to try and use, and he will hate that, that notion, use Shireen's death best he can, corrosive and corrupted as it might make him feel. We have these theories, don't we, of the, the dark John coming back, of him spending too much time in the wolf and all that kind of thing, the wild John. That's perfectly possible, but I think what 
what would really break him is this information of how he's brought back whether it's serene or monster whichever especially i mean i think that would happen to anyone but given the type of person that john is and how he does care for innocence and that type of thing oh it's way way worse for him isn't it i mean if you think he carried around guilt about egret or the men he sent out beyond the wall remember those ones that he's their names are etched on his heart how much is young shireen going to play on his mind and again like i say it's probably doubly as bad if it's monster because he kind of put him in that situation i suppose it's quite possible it's both could easily be both it makes for some very interesting questions if it is john's resurrection that shireen burns for I think it's most likely Melisandre who does it, again given that current situation and her supposed increased power at the wall and her own motivation as well. As it stands, Stannis may value Jon as a commander, as a uh, something to use within the war, but he has no reason to believe that he's the man who can actually swing the war, at least according to my memory, and it'd take quite a lot of persuading, I feel. But if Melisandre does it of her own volition likely with Selyse's help, because we all know what she's like. Imagine Stannis returning to Castle Black to find out that this has happened without his command. Either he comes victorious, finally in a good-ish mood, only to have all that stolen away from him instantly, the more likely, in my opinion, he comes defeated straight out from the battle, or shunned from the Northerners, low as he can possibly be, only to find there's yet darker depths of hell for him to still tread. The betrayal he'll feel at his wife, at Melisandre, at any of his men who remain, and possibly at John himself as well. He could easily blame him for this. And though he won't have lit the match himself, ultimately the guilt will consume him. He will consider it his fault, and he'd be right. He is the one who introduced Melisandre, after all. He signed off on all those previous burnings, and he is doing them himself right now. He's the one who ignored Davos and Maester Cressin before him. It'll be his fault, and it'll likely be what finishes him off. This man, who's borne many emotional brunts over his time, I think this will be the one thing that cannot he cannot stand, the thing that will break him, as many uh, predict he will do. What he actually does after that, moving against John or becoming an outright villain, even siding with the others in some capacity, they're all possible. This could easily be the corruption that really sends Stannis down the path to the Night's King role or whatever he might be. He might have already started that on that direction after being shunned from the north but this is the real driving force i think it'll be very interesting if the burning is used for something stannis specific given his role in those philosophical discussions with davos the possibility of davos being anywhere near for this is remote but not impossible and it won't have the emotional depth as it does in the show because davos and shireen aren't as close as they are in the show but the intellectual again philosophical depth that it has as a callback to those honestly series defining conversations on dragstone on Dragonstone is lip-smacking stuff. In terms of themes, it also mixes quite well with the nothing easy vibe of the series. Like we discussed earlier, everything has a cost. What are you willing to do? Is the overall goal worth breaking your own morals, your own personal laws? It's exactly what Davos was saying. But no easy answer. We don't have them. We see it in most of the main characters' arcs at some point, but this is kind of a, a big step up, isn't it? I think it will actually be quite interesting to look back at Shireen's burning at the series' end, should we get it. If all goes well and humanity is saved, will we be able to look back and say, well, in fairness, if they hadn't burned Shireen, they wouldn't have won? I think I can see George leaving that just murky enough to have us discussing it for years and years, to keep us in conflict about whether it was right or wrong forever. I'm fairly sure it's been said before during this series, but the bittersweet ending that George has promised us is already here.
we're really about to live through it in winds. Shireen is going to be just one of many, many victims of that, but few are going to capture major messages of the series in one despicable act. After all, what is she but an innocent child about to become one more victim of war? Which again, this series is about. Perhaps someone, somewhere, will be able to remember her as crucial to the war effort. As someone who sacrificed so others could survive, perhaps they will, but to be honest, I wouldn't bet on it. And there is actually more thinking on these types of lines from the question in episode three. So I do encourage you to go back and listen to that episode for more kind of Shireen talk. Now then, we're flying through. Question 44. This is actually a follow-on from a, a previous question about Euron's creatures. It comes from Derek Blackfire. He says this. Each big battle has something. The Battle of Fire has dragons. The Battle of Old Town, we assume is coming, might have krakens. Storm's End, possibly elephants. But what about Winterfell? What does the Battle of Ice, the Battle of Winterfell, whatever you want to call it, what does that have in terms of the otherworldly? Is it too early for wolves or the others? Derek certainly thinks so. So he suggests maybe giants. Yes, this is a bit of a callback here. Derek previously posed a question about potential prizes that Euron might gain during wins. And in doing so, noticed a pattern with these big battles and the fantastical elements being added into them and also elephants. They aren't uh, quite on the same level as your average dragon or kraken, but they are at least a new element for field battle in Westeros. And your, you know, your high garden man from some village in the Reach who's about to face down this great big thing with tusks, oh yeah, he'll, he'll probably lose it even more if he was facing a dragon, but I still don't think he's going to be in a rush to stand in to stand the charge of this massive thing barreling towards him. It's something your general infantryman has never even heard of, let alone seen in the flesh, or imagined as real, or tried to fight. So Derek does have a point. And we might even be able to extend it to potential prologues or early chapters in that assumed ambush in the Riverlands, the one I liked so much. This ambush upon the prisoner train headed for Castle Rock, if you remember. Many of us think there's a good chance of Nymeria and her personal army getting involved in that. Calling that one a battle, sure, bit of a stretch, but still, supernatural creatures doing extraordinary things. And really, that's a sign of the turning times coming to Westeros in general, isn't it? I've spoken at length previously about these long-held tent poles, these rocks that are thousands of years old, like Winterfell or Guestrite, let alone the Wall or Old Town. Institutions that these this whole culture is based on, well, those are eroding and showing that a new era is coming, a new age. And these creatures are doing the same thing. They are signposting that for us, both in-world and narratively, I think it's a sign. In-world, we're now entering a time of magic, uh, upheaval and great change, probably a greater change than seen before. Narratively, these subtle magics and otherworldly building beings that have been kept to the edges and limited to teasing are no longer restricted in the same way. I remember I've talked about that, the structure, especially in prologues, a lot before. They are now entering the public consciousness, and not just in terms of being recognised as existing, they're actually going to come and affect, really affect the outcomes of major battles and what's happening in the world, the world of men. Magic, the other world. It will begin to affect Westeros, touch Westeros in very public ways. Humanity will learn quite quickly that they aren't the only ones involved in this war. Oh no. There are others for them to learn about just before they learn of the ultimate brain melter, of course, that their own dead can walk. All that is pretty exciting, I think. We've been building to it for a long, long time. 
It's come on inch by inch, but it really does look to flood the plains in winds via the various examples that Derek gave us and several more as well. All of these cool, fascinating creatures coming out of the woodwork and pointing us towards the climax. However, yes, we do have one apparent outlier. Winterfell, or for sake of argument, let's call it the Battle of the Vice. And if we want to talk about large events and winds, well, <laughs> there's only one that rivals this battle in terms of build-up and expectation and fallout. I think you remember what that is. We just had two questions on it a minute ago. And sure, we have less of a preview for the Battle of Ice than we do the Battle of Fire from preview chapters, etc. And assumedly, we might have to wait a little bit longer to get actually get down to it on page because Stannis isn't even there yet. There's also lots of ideas about the logistics of that battle and how it will play out, who the major players will be, the numbers evolved, and all that cool nerdy stuff that we do like to delve into. But throughout all that guessing, we are missing any supernatural elements, or at least supernatural creatures. Perhaps the supernatural in this battle will simply be covered by winter itself and this great storm the North is currently suffering through. That would be more than sufficient in all fairness. We've already seen in Stannis' campaign how it is affecting everything and will continue to do so well into the battle probably. So I personally think that could work rather well. We know natural elements will play a part in Stannis versus the phrase with icy lakes being covered by snow, or at least that's what we figure. And the battle itself will have to deal with more of the same and it will largely affect visibility, tactics, knowing who's on your side, and, gens- and general chances of survival also. As it stands, no eldritch creatures are walking out of this storm to battle for one side or the other. That doesn't mean it can't happen, but we don't know about it yet. Derek has kindly provided some suggestions though. First up, the effective standard bearers for the north and beyond, the others and the direwolves. And correctly, he guessed it's probably too early on for the others to really step onto the main stage for the Battle of Ice. That's going to come later. As far as we know, they're all still locked up above the wall, obviously. And while, again, that northern timeline is messy by the end of Dance and going into Winds, we're pretty sure that A, the wall is not down yet, and B, it probably won't be until near the end of the book and the Battle of Ice is well wrapped up. That's not to say there won't be further battles at Winterfell, because we know there will be. Political battles to decide control, more important battles to settle the argument of life versus death, and we fully expect those to have others and whites and all manner of undead things. In fact, it may be the climactic battle, but not yet. First, they must breach the wall, cut through the Night's Watch like butter, and then make their way all the way south to Winterfell, so probably later on for that one. Giants, another suggestion from Derek, are an interesting one. I believe I'm right in saying there is a missing contingent of giants currently near Eastwatch, going the long way around the wall that we often forget about. Again, I think, I think my memory is correct in saying there's no way George is going to have a group of the last giants in existence wandering around and not using them at some point. I stand by that. But probably not at Winterfell. Not this time. Just on a logistical issue. They're far away, even further than those at Castle Blackheart. And again, as far as I remember, they'd have none with them who'd have the motivation to get them to Winterfell anyway. So I just don't see it happening for this battle. We do have a question about these specific giants later on in the series anyway, so I'm not going to go into them too much more. The walls, back to the walls, there's at least a higher chance. And we do have two categories here, remember. Die walls and run-of-the-mill walls. Let's tackle the die walls first as they're way cooler, aren't they? We know of six, except really it's five because Lady died. Except really it's four because Grey Wind died, allegedly. Of those four, Ghost is up at the wall with John. So if the actual Battle of Ice is delayed enough for a reanimated John to come down and act out his pink letter plan, then sure, Ghost can be involved and we could cheer at him ripping up some frey limbs. But that is a hell of a delay, and I'm not sure we're expecting 
that with all the chaos at Castle Black to be dealt to be dealt with first, there's going to be time for that. Probably not. What about other diewolves then? Summer is currently far above the wall, down in the cave of the Free-Eyed Raven with Bran. So his likelihood of getting there is probably the lowest of all of them, to be honest. Although I will come back to Bran in a second. Nymeria, last we heard, had gathered herself a bit of a wolf army in the Riverlands, and we've spoken about them quite a bit in terms of possibly getting involved with that juicy potential prologue slash an ambush in the Riverlands, slash Westerlands, depending on where it comes. It's not impossible, Nymeria and her army don't get involved in that at all, and instead travel north to get involved, but again, it's a timing thing, and I've said many times that Nymeria and Aya's current themes are much more at home in the Riverlands and around Lady Stoneheart. So I'm going to say it's unlikely, though not impossible. I mean, you could even get Lady Stoneheart involved. Does she count as an eldritch creature? Hmm, maybe. But at the very least, there's things to deal with down there first. Which leaves Shaggy Dog, who, we assume, is in Skagos with Rickon. And we all believe that Davos is going to fetch said young, wild, young Stark and wild, young wolf and they'll be bringing them to Winterfell on Wyland Manderley's orders. And then there's a bit of a rabbit hole that we've delved into before about what Wyland Manderley will actually do with her comments is there. Again, will they Al Stannis, etc, etc, let's not go into it right now. Point being, even though Davos and company probably don't come until after the battle, you certainly don't want to be bringing Rickon, a truly prized possession at this point, into the middle of a very confusing and bloody battle, they definitely could get there in time. They might aim for the end of the battle and get there late, or maybe they're even the saving force in the 11th hour, potentially. Now, this still wouldn't be on par with the other examples given in Derek's question. This isn't a full force of elements or as influential as two dragons. It's a single direwolf, although it is a wild one. And wouldn't it be funny if little Rickon's wolf had grown to be the largest? So I'm betting he could do some damage on a battlefield. And if George is looking to get across what trauma and time with the Skagosi has done to Rickon's already kind of frayed temperament, maybe the best way is to show it with an uncontrollable, battle-frenzied Shaggy Dog. Besides, perhaps he does not come alone. Perhaps Shaggy Dog has cultivated his own little group of lawyer walls as Nymeria has. Or maybe Rickon brings some Skagosi friends with him. And maybe they come riding unicorns. Oh yes, wouldn't it be quite George's to supply us with cute little unicorns? And then have one of our first views of them actually be as trained war horses, running through Freys and Boltons with their blood-spattered horns. It would definitely tick the supernatural box, wouldn't it? The counter to this is it would require Davos's mission to go quite straightforward if they were to arrive in time, and going quite straightforward is not one of Davos's strengths. We've got thoughts on him getting stuck at Hardhome and what have you, so it's a bit of a roadblock, as are the logistics of shipping across a pack of wolves or a herd of unicorns, should they be available. Still, it's quite a good one to picture. I like that one. I mentioned real wolves again there, and there's another possibility of those coming to help, but from the other direction. The Wolfswood is still close by to Winterfell, and it's some obvious thematic resonance if they were to come out in defence of Winterfell, but what would be their driving force? Well, let's throw Greywind into the mix. Why not? Yes, we assume he's dead, and maybe he is, but there is technically room for him to be alive. And if you don't believe me, the brilliant Lady Gwyn has posted a, a very convincing and well-reasoned argument on this subject quite a few years ago now, and it would at least get you admitting it's a, pos a possibility if you haven't read it. I encourage you to, definitely. So what if Rob's spirit, or Rob's direwolf, bursts out of the neck or out of the wolf's wood, either with other wolves or by himself, and goes to protect the very home that Rob was trying to get back to when he died? Maybe. If we're super lucky, we'll even have Greywind take revenge on the man who actually killed Rob, and that'll be the end of Roose Bolton. Maybe he'll rip his head off in some poetic justice for what was done to Rob's corpse. Likely? No. 
fun to think of? Absolutely. We have one more possibility, and it is one I've actually spoken about before. I'm going to reroute you now all the way back to Theon 1, The Winds of Winter, the preview chapter, and the Scraps and Scrolls episode I did on it. You're forgiven if you don't remember, as it was quite a while ago now, but I just want to point you to the ending of that chapter, where we have Stannis, Asher, Theon, and a whole big bunch of ravens. To remind you, Asher suggests that Stannis execute Theon in front of a heart tree, and the ravens, this big old bunch of them, go bananas at the idea. They're all squawking, squawking away, and then start talking even more clearly than usual when they say, and when they say, tree, 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 followed by Theon, Theon, Theon. I took a quick look back at the, uh, my notes for this chapter, and unsurprisingly, I really did break down that ending quote and all possible meanings for it as was our style back in the Scraps and Scrolls days, line by line, if you remember. I won't lead you down that same winding road now. You can always go back and find that particular episode if you wish, but it's a pretty down, creepy ending to a chapter, isn't it? Tree, 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 fion, fion, fion. And it's one I bring up because at the time, I postulated the idea that Bran, being hooked by what he saw happening with Theon and what he may yet see with Theon and the Heart Tree, will participate in the Battle of Winterfell through the use of ravens, or, at the very least, will witness the battle through their many-winged eyes. And to be honest, even that idea I personally find thrilling. We have this gigantic battle with, again, many different factions and moving parts in the middle of a snowstorm, most likely, set against the very emotional centre of our story and one hell of a setting for a battle in general, in Winterfell. I think you remember my feelings on Winterfell. And there's a possibility we could actually see it with a sky view. Let's just picture the cinematics of that. It would be unlike anything we've ever seen in the books so far, and it would really give George something new to play with, instead of being restricted by earthbound POVs like he was in the Blackwater, for example. Now, some of you might find part of that part of the charm, but this new possibility, oh, it's got to be exciting, isn't it? And that's not even getting into how it would be Bran, Seeing this, remember, Bran, who obviously cares very, very much about his home. Bran, who knows the rooftops of Winterfell better than perhaps anyone living. That was his world once, not so long ago. We could spend ages talking about the emotional depth there and what's going, what that's going to do to Bran's arc. With that, that's the hook that brings him back. There's several potential hooks, but that's a pretty big one. That could be what brings him back to the world of the living. And what if he does actually manage to involve the ravens in some way? Maybe he sends them to claw the face of some defender on his Winterfell walls. Maybe even signify some hidden way in to the attacking forces. We could really, if we wanted to, do a deep dive into the many, many possibilities. And actually, I do recommend going back to that Theon 1 episode and listening to the end because I am able to go into it a bit more there. But even if actually getting involved is a step too far, let's just imagine our reading experience of a Winterfell battle as seen from the sky. How amazing great an experience would that actually be for us it's again nothing less than exhilarating so no ravens wouldn't be on the same scale of affecting the outcome like dragons or krakens from the deep but it'd still be pretty cool pretty useful and in keeping with bran and currently fion's themes if nothing else ravens are everywhere sure but they're definitely big up north that's a great question i like that one final question of the day we're nearly there about an hour and a half recording time my voice is still holding on i don't know about your ears Let's go for it. This is the last one. Question 45. Is Gilly actually an old town? So if you've been paying attention so far today, you're forgiven if you haven't, you'll see or you'll hear that we've had two pretty in-depth 
deep questions about the two major areas of interest, definitely at the start of the book, in the North and the Far East, Winterfell and Marine. This is the first episode back, and I was supposed to be easing you back in, but I think you'll agree we've kind of jumped in the deep end and um, yeah, definitely gone longer than I had planned, as I always do. So what do you say we take a bit more of a chilled vibe for the final question of the day? This one is a bit sillier, a bit lighter, and as we've had two Norths and two Marines, this time we're going to South Westeros. Now ideally, I would have liked to do a question about King's Landing, the other major geographical plot point. But if you can think of a light, silly, fairly quick question to do with everything going on there, you've got a better mind than I. So instead, we're going a little bit further south all the way down to Old Town for a question that's actually one of the ones I came up with personally. Is Gilly in Old Town? You see what I mean? Bit silly, a bit tongue-in-cheek. Because the simple and highly likely answer is yes. Of course she is, what are you talking about? But as I've mentioned, I believe on previous editions of this series, and maybe also um, History of Westeros live streams, we don't actually know. To take you back in time once again, the final chapter of A Feast for Crows features one Samuel Tarly as he takes his first steps into the Citadel as the next stage of his mission from John. And nowhere in that entire chapter does it actually confirm that Gilly left the Cinnamon Wind, the ship that she, Sam, and Mance's son, masquerading as her own, travelled around the south of Westeros on. In fact, while Sam does privately think of sending Gilly onto Hornhill for safety once he's established, due to all that worrying evidence of an imminent attack on Old Town that they witnessed while sailing through the Straits, what he actually does is confirm with Koja Mo, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, the captain's daughter, that Gilly would be welcome aboard until he returns. Koja says... Gilly can stay as long as she likes. Well, so far as we know, Sam doesn't get to return to the Cinnamon Wind. He gets wrapped up in the very complicated dealings of the Maesters and the mission, the new mission, left behind by Archmaester Marwyn, who, we do know, leaves Old Town immediately on the Cinnamon Wind. So my question to you is this. What if Gilly never got off before Marwyn entered and ordered them to go east? Either because she chose to or was restricted for some reason. Did Marwyn see something in Mance's child and know he was of importance? That seems far-fetched, but we don't know enough to put anything past this guy. What if he, in perhaps a more knowing position about what about to come down on Old Town, refused to let her mother and child stay behind to suffer through it? Or, least likely of all, what if Gilly simply chose to stay? That's very doubtful that she'd leave Sam, especially now with the strengthened relationship between them, but she has made something of friendships aboard the ship too. Again, it's clear the most likely of events is that she and the baby disembarked, and by the time we get a new Sam chapter... He's either set them up in Old Town somewhere, although I struggle to think of how, logistically, or he sent them on to Horn Hill. Or maybe by that time, everyone is already running from the Ironborn by that first chapter. We've spoken before in this series about that exact possibility. But I think it's kind of fun to imagine the alternative. Gilly, this amazing woman who's already seen a wider range of the known world than almost anyone living, who shattered her preconceptions, shattered to pieces of what the world is, that they're gone beyond recognition now. She extends her journey, not only going from beyond the wall to below the wall, but then from the north to Old Town, and now Old Town to Marine. No one, no one is matching that kind of travel length in these stories. Maybe Daenerys eventually, but not yet. Plus, I kind of like the idea of her getting even further from the others and the memories of her father. If anyone deserves that, it's Gilly. And definitely getting her out of Euron's path is a plus, although... The reverse is that she's also going further and further away from her own son. Then again, the chances of those two seeing each other aren't super high if she is in Old Town anyway. So, Again, I tell you, the chances of any of this happening are 
kind of beyond ridiculous. But if we speak about Tyrion or the Ironborn being out of place in Marine, what about freaking Gilly? Gilly, the wildling, suddenly out in the desert. It just it just boggles the mind a bit. Now, would there be an actual plot reason for this? Well, it would free Sam up to do whatever he needs to do at the Citadel, I suppose. But it would also rob him of a lot of his motivation. Could Marwyn want something with the baby, perhaps? Is there some kind of connection Daenerys can make with the child or with Gilly? Or will he move from one danger to another if Daenerys is linked up with the King's Blood fanatics of Volantis by the time they arrive in her camp? Yes, we really are stretching the ideas now. Still, would it not be cool if Gilly did get there somehow and became friends with Daenerys, two of our strongest female characters from completely different ends of the social and geographical scale, just about any scale really? Wouldn't it just be cool? Yes, it's a pipe dream. Maybe Gilly just goes full-time on the cinnamon wind and hangs out with those guys, safe from the larger worries of the world. I'd be cool with that. She has perhaps her first real friend in Koja Mo, and even sometimes slow Sam, clocks that she's finally been able to make a connection with Mance and Dahlia's child. She has some measure of happiness aboard. Does the same await them in Old Town? Yes, the safe bet is that she's in Old Town, if I'm being honest. But that conversation at the beginning of Sam's chapter is left curiously vague, and the door is open. And sometimes we all just need to dream, don't we? There we go. That's all we've got for that final question there. Five of them for you today instead of the ten. And we're still nearly cracking on for two hours. So like I said, not short of content. The voice, I'm sure you can tell me, is cracking. Not doing well. Uh, I need to go and stretch my back. I did actually have to pause three times throughout to go and stretch my back. Because that's just the uh, current state of things. I hope the return... The other faces was what you had hoped and expected. I hope you can come back again. Like I said earlier, I hope you can take a look at the Patreon if you're able to. If not, fine by me. Understandable. It's been a long time coming back. Delays, I'm sure, will come again in real life and all those kind of things. But forget all that. I would just like to say thanks for uh, if you kept the faith whilst away or if you've returned now or both. Whichever. It's nice to be able to talk to you all again. Hopefully it won't be too long before that happens once more. For now, I thank everyone again, especially the patrons. I remind you to send questions in if you have them. I especially remind you to send in answers because I'd love to feature those in the next episode. That'd be cool. I like doing that. And I will say from this rainy, drizzly Isle of Faces, thank you and we'll see you next time. Cheers, everyone. See you later.